0: Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with the Secretary of the South Dakota Department of Health, Kim Malsum Risden, about South Dakota's successful vaccine rollout. Secretary, how are you doing this afternoon?
1: Well, I'm doing just fine. Happy to be uh, working on what we're working on at this point in the game.
0: No, for sure. Well, we're happy to have you on the podcast today. Um, We had a a bunch of stuff that we want to talk about, but just to, first of all, get to know you a little bit more, um, where did you grow up?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. I uh, Actually, I was born in Sioux Falls, um, and my folks uh, were natives of here, but we uh, lived in Wisconsin and then in New Hampshire when I was growing up. And then after I graduated from high school, uh, they had an opportunity to move back to South Dakota, and um, I went to USD as a result of that. I was uh, I wanted to stay close to my family. My dad had gone to USD, and um, that's kind of how I made my way there, um, but actually growing up in, in different states.
0: You, know, you you would earn a degree in political science from USD, correct? Yes, that's right. You know, do you have any, I guess, favorite memories from your time at USD? <laughs>
1: Um, I, I loved USD. In fact, my son, um, my younger son, is uh, a junior there now, and I um, enjoy hearing how things are going for him. But when I was there, I uh, you know, really appreciated a couple of opportunities. I uh, did a class with Tom Loeb, who I believe has since moved on, um, and uh, it was a class that was I, was, I was a freshman at the time, so I was on the young end of this um, kind of experience, but it was a mock UN Kind of class, and so uh, we would meet. Uh, we got assigned to be delegates from you know different countries, um, and we prepped um, and learned about that country and, and learned what kinds of issues uh, would be important. And then we ended that experience with uh, holding kind of a mock UN assembly in New York City, and it was it was quite the experience. We we took buses or not buses, like bands down and. Um, really, really interesting and uh, a really good experience. But, yeah, I mean, just had great classes. Um, Mike Roach, who I do know is still around, um, another great teacher. And I, I just remember some of those classes like they happened yesterday. And, of course, it was quite some time ago. So really good experience.
0: Now, you were one of the initial graduates of the university honors program, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, uh, it w- I was one of two. And the other person was Bob Sutton, who I'm still... <laughs> you know, close friends with, and who, of, of course, leads the Avera system now. And so I think, yeah, the honors program was a good experience as well.
0: Uh, that's that's awesome. I mean, so then did you take classes together, or, or how, what was the program, oh, yeah. I guess, like yep. back then?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I remember of all classes that we took together, we took a philosophy class together. And, um, you know, I think if you had him on his program, he'd tell you we, <laughs> we, we had a lot of discussions throughout that class our professor at the time was quite a character and um uh very thought provoking. But yeah, so we had, you know, we um obviously were encouraged to take higher level classes and that got me into some areas that probably wouldn't have been natural, you know, areas of interest for me. And so, you know, I ended up taking like physics, which <laughs> was challenging to say the least, but uh, you know, it it got me exposed to some different areas. And I think that was, you know, helpful and a and good experience. Um, But also, you know, what was really um, helpful about that program at that time was the opportunity to really um, focus on group discussion and critical thinking and um, talking about topics of the day, talking about books of the day, and I think just being exposed to some things that um, are important at that age in your life, Um, and I think it helped me kind of become a, a better thinker about things and, um, again, just a good experience. I'd recommend it to anybody. In fact, my son's in the honors program now, so I'm, I'm in, it's neat to see how um, that experience has even changed in some of the, the ways that they're teaching critical thinking skills today. I'm, I'm kind of jealous.
0: You, know, you, um, you know, spoke about that like mock UN experience. I'm, I'm curious because you've served now in a variety of positions within state government and helping those with disabilities. Did you always know then that you wanted a career in public service?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I really did. Actually, I, I, I um, majored in political science because I had intended to go to law school, and it was really with an intent to um, to be a voice for people that don't have a voice, and that's just always been an interest of mine and. Um, you know, certainly people with disabilities, um, would fall into that category. And, um, you know, there, there was work to be done and continues to be work to be done in that arena, in my opinion. Um, when I was a senior and, you know, had done the LSAT and was just really thinking about, like, gosh, is this the step I want to take? Um, you know, I, I really just kind of had an epiphany and, and really. Changed course and thought a master's in social work might be a way for me to accomplish those types of goals, um, you know, in a, in a different way. And so that was the route I ended up taking. But certainly with a with an eye towards public service.
0: Now you currently serve as the secretary of the South Dakota Department of Health. Um, you know, I think even during like a normal time, that would be like an incredibly demanding job, right? Obviously, with the pandemic this last year, I, I can only kind of imagine I, what has the past year, I guess, been like?
1: Yeah, I mean, challenging, um, you know, exhausting, um, disheartening at times, um, but also, um, you know, really providing a lot of optimism. I, I mean, we've seen a lot of really good things um, in the midst of you know, some headlines that um, can be pretty scary. And so, I mean, it's just been a lot of things. Um, but, you know, I, I would tell you that um, I think as an agency, we're going to come out stronger. And um, if you can do that in the midst of crisis, then, then you're in a good position. And I, I feel like we are. Uh, we have, you know, we've always worked really, really hard in partnership with others across the state because that's really how effective public health Uh, work gets done. Um, You know, public health is so big that um, it's no one entity's job, and you really do have to work together to make um, inroads into some of the issues that we work on, on a normal, you know, in a normal day. And so, those relationships, I think, really did, you know, serve us well, Um, and I think, you know, because of that, we, you know, we didn't have to do things like develop trust with others to you know, work on plans um, together or to work on projects together or to share information um, about, you know, where things were at and where we thought they might be going. And so, I really credit that with, um, you know, being a a strong part of our response um, and something that I think we'll be able to leverage moving forward as we continue to work, um, you know, in public health Um, because, again, it, it just doesn't happen in isolation and it's, no one agency or entity can really um, effectively address many of the issues that we work on. So we came into a strong, um, with you know, with those relationships. And, um, you know, uh, I just can't say enough about the health systems in our state. Um, and by health systems, it, it's certainly the, you know, the large three that a lot of people think about. But it's also the, you know, the independent hospitals and the, you know, individual clinics and individual providers who, you know, It was so apparent from the very beginning just wanted to see people stay healthy and stay safe and do what they can um, in that regard and so we were very united very early um, I think in the right way and um, I think that helped us as well Um, so that's been really heartening to see and um, you know just to kind of work through issues bringing you know we bring obviously a state government perspective and we are the state's public health agency. We're not decentralized like a lot of other states. So, you know, it's our staff here at the state level and in our offices across the, the, you know, different counties that are literally doing, you know, things like contact tracing um, and playing that role in addition to kind of some of the policy work around testing and um, other aspects of the response. So, um, you know, uh, I've learned, you know, kind of (laughs) if I compare where I am now to where I was a year ago, I've learned a lot about viruses and infectious diseases. And, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, the other thing with COVID has been how much we've just learned about it. And, um, I, you know, that was a challenging aspect. I mean, I remember in the early days when we were getting a lot of information from the CDC, it was, you know, really short notice. I'd be like, we're having this webinar and, in an hour <laughs> and you, you know, you drop everything, you jump on this webinar to see what we could learn, um, at that point in time. And, um, you know, and, and we were, and that was kind of the mode we were in for weeks. Um, just learning about it. it was, and that was kind of even before it came, to, you know, before we saw it in the United States and then when you we were starting to see it, um, you know, being detected in travelers and then there was the whole travel policy and how do we screen those people and, you know, all the while we don't really have testing available, and so that starts to kind of develop. And it's you know at the at the early stages of the response, the only entities that could do testing for COVID were state public health labs, and so our own staff um, had to really come up on that and learn about that, and you know figure out how do you effectively you know implement uh, a, a program like that when supplies were very limited, our knowledge was very limited a lot of fear out there. Um, So, yeah, I mean, to look back to where we were a year ago and how far we've come, not only in our knowledge of of COVID, but how it spreads, how that can be mitigated, um, you know, the the evolution of testing. I mean, you know, we're encouraging people to go onto our website and order your free at-home saliva-based test, um, which is a pretty darn easy way to... You know, uh, provide a specimen compared to where we started, which were uh, much more intrusive. And so yeah, so it, it's it's pretty crazy to think about, but um, good stuff too. And you know, the thing is, is we're not we're not out of the woods yet. And so we um, are yeah, really um, appreciate being able to work on vaccines. The fact that we're even talking about a vaccine, let alone three vaccines, you know, as of today, that are incredibly effective, is just it's really amazing. I mean. You know, we're talking in a normal flu year, influenza, which is a big push for us to get uh, adults and, and kids vaccinated for, our, for influ- seasonal influenza. And, you know, every year we look at you know how effective is that vaccine against the strain that ends up circulating amongst the population. And, you know, it's not uncommon to see um you know, efficacy in the 40 to 50% range, that's fairly common. And when you, when you get a vaccine match of 60% efficacy, you you know, you kind of think, wow, that's a, that's a great outcome. And we're talking about COVID vaccines that at the minimum are 66% effective all the way up to 95% effective in terms of, um, you know, preventing transmission. And then when you look at their efficacy, um, against hospitalization and death, you're seeing 100% efficacy. And that's just, like, unheard of in the vaccine realm. So it's really exciting, too. Um, but, yeah, just just lots of stuff I could obviously go on and on. And, uh, you know, we've um, been through a lot of trials and tribulations, um, and we've learned a lot, um, and I think we will carry some of that with us, which is, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see um, that it's going to make us better, at, at, you know, at the end of it.
0: No, I think we're recording this on, on March 17th. And, um, you know, I think back, it's it's about a year, you know, since kind of this mm-hmm. all began. And I- you talked, you know, about just the uncertainty of those first few weeks. And it just made me think about like that time period when we were, you know, we didn't know if we should like wipe down our groceries or not. I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's crazy to think like how much um, information we have now, you know, versus when we when we kind of were in the initial stages of the pandemic. I mean, what what did you learn about? you know, from an administrative perspective, having to make decisions without, you know, the 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 full complement of information you would have, like, wanted to make a decision. I mean, like, that had to have been super difficult when you were making decisions about tests and stuff. Like, how, how did you all, I guess, you know, in real time, kind of in the, that crisis mode, you know, yeah. make decisions that you knew were going to impact, you know, thousands of people? Yeah, I mean,
1: I, you know, we... I would, mentioned a couple of things, and uh, we still use this to this day. And that is, you know, first of all, the CDC, um, you know, is is going to provide the best scientific information possible. Um, and you know, it's a it's a federal system, but it you know it's it's um, informed by what's happening in the states. And so the surveillance that's happening at any given point um, across the country for new viruses. Um, you know, uh, has the benefit of the CDC behind it um, just to really know or to be in the best position to know what's really going on. And so we had, you know, we had that and, you know, um, I think we we made a strategic decision at the very beginning to really make sure people understood that we were going to be a source of the best information possible at the time that that we were working in. And, um, you know, we... Uh, We're going to be sharing what the CDC knew. Um, We were going to be sharing what we didn't know. And I think that helped people, you know, at least it helped me, (laughs) um, you know, with kind of that anxiety over how much we didn't know, but just kind of giving voice to that and acknowledging that there are things that we do not know. And, um, you know, that's not where we want to be, but it is where we are and acknowledging that and recognizing that, um, you know, when we do learn new things or different things, um, that we are going to share those things. And so that was something, um, actually, um, you mentioned about being a year out. It was literally a a week ago today where we had our first cases in South Dakota. And I'll just kind of give you a sense of what that was like here at at our end. Um, So by that time, uh, we had uh, activated our um, Department of Health emergency operation structure. And so we were meeting um, every day that time of day um, as a larger group, and then we had other smaller subsets working on different aspects, you know, understanding what was happening with testing, understanding what was happening with travelers at that time, understanding what was happening with, um, you know, the science around how COVID spread. So all those different aspects that we just, again, understand much better today. So we had different groups working through all those things. And we come together towards the end of the day just to kind of share what did, what did we learn that day? Um, what decisions did we need to make, um, both in the immediate and in the short term, and potentially in the longer term? And it was just kind of a process that you that you worked through. Um, and all the while, uh, we, for the past two weeks um, before March 10th, you know, we're just waiting for the first case, and um, because it's inevitable, it's it's been detected in other states and other states around us. And, you know, you just know that that's coming. And so the the way it was set up at that time, of course, again, it's only the state public health lab that is doing the testing for states. And so our own state public health lab, you know, they'd report out every morning how many samples came in overnight and how many they would be testing. And, uh, you know, they would be, um, you know, sharing those test results as soon as they had them. And it happened to coincide with the beginning of this daily meeting. And. You know, every day they'd come and look um, to this point and say, you know, ran this many tests and all were negative. And you just kind of sigh a <laughs> breath of, you know, sigh of relief, um, breath of relief um, on those particular days. Well, then, of course, March 10th um, happens. And I remember the setup of this room um, because we had gotten started and um, one of our key leaders at the lab, I wasn't there yet, and um, as it happens, the only seat left is right next to me, and uh, she kind of comes in, and she just does not look happy and just is, you know, I don't know, just looking dejected, and so she sits down, and we all kind of look at her because we all just want to know what the results are. She goes, I just didn't want to have to say this, but we have our first case, um, but not only that, we have five cases and, um, among those five cases, one person died. And so we just all had kind of anticipated that it'd be this one case and we'd deal with it. And, you know, maybe another couple of days would pass, and we'd have another case. And instead we really just kind of got thrown into, you know, wow, we've got five cases. That was pretty unprecedented. And in fact, we have a death and, you know, really hadn't contemplated, um, you know, the the aspect of death from this, um, from a perspective of seeing that in South Dakota residents. And so um, that was the start of many, um, you know, uh, conversations with the press um, that the governor held, and, and I was with her, and a lot of questions, and, and naturally so, and, you know, questions that we needed to figure out from a perspective of, you know, what can we what can we report? Um, because obviously there's concerns around confidentiality. If you get, you know, start talking about information that could lead to identification of individuals and balancing that with, you know, the need for people to understand what's going on, um, in light of the fact that at the time that we had to report those first five cases, we didn't, you know, we didn't know a lot. We didn't know where they had been. And again, COVID had really been something that, uh, you know, was, was found in people that had traveled somewhere else. Um, so that was kind of the, the time that we were in. And, you know, when you, when you get your first five cases like that, you, you don't know where these folks have been. You, you know, you don't know whether they're, they're sick. I mean, there's just a whole host of things that we really just did not know at the time. And people were asking a lot of questions. And I, I remember the pressure of those early days of people just really wanting information. And uh, we just didn't have it. And so getting um, smart about some of those processes and, you know, um, you know, getting to a point where we have a very robust data dashboard now out on, on our website. And I would, you know, uh, brag a little bit and say, I think it's one of the best in the country for, for providing information um, to folks that are are interested in in COVID. Um, But, you know, really starting with nothing um, and getting to that point was, you know, a real hurdle. Um, But I think that's, you know, an example of one thing that will carry forward and just how do we make data more actionable as it pertains to public health issues in our state. And so I think we're we're going to be much better situated in that regard um, as a result of our COVID experience.
0: You know, I want to ask one last question about just kind of those initial days. I mean, I think back and it's I think it was the King's College of London. They had produced like a report. Mm-hmm and I mean, uh-huh. it was it was terrifying you know and that was <laughs> I, I remember coming back from a trip and like the next day reading the report and just like that that was like i'll always think that that was the day where this like the p- pandemic became real for me because i kind of you could just start to anticipate like oh this is like not gonna go away this is this is gonna cause significant disruptions in our daily life and it's gonna go on for a long time i mean when you talk about sort of like kind of sitting in the offices and everyone just kind of anticipating those first cases. I mean, even at the time, did, did, did you know it was going to, that this was going to be as significant of a like really life altering event for really the entire world? I mean, when did, when did the gravity of it just sink in for you? Well, you know, um,
1: it wasn't shortly after we we got into it that, you know, the gravity did, did set in and, um, you know, again, there, the, the the whole thinking early on was this is something that was kind of being imported, if you will, you know, by travel. Um, and, you know, we, we knew um, that once we got to a point of community spread that uh, this was going to be a long, long, drawn-out event. Um, and that just comes from, um, you know, kind of his, his, historical experiences, excuse me, with... Um, you know, how viruses spread and the fact that this was novel, um, and that's where the NCOV comes from, novel coronavirus, um, and that there was just, a, you know, so much we didn't know about its, its transmission and mitigation early on. And so it's easy to kind of, you know, play what if, and it's kind of like, gosh, what if we had known um, really just how this was being transmitted? you know, in those early days and what mitigation could have looked like then. Um, Instead of washing our groceries, we could have been, you know, wearing masks and staying six feet away from people and, you know, how different things would have looked. But, yeah, we we knew the gravity um, quite early on um, when we just kept seeing cases that um, were were moving towards the march of community spread. And we knew once we hit community spread that it was going to be, you know, uh, really draw out uh, the, the battle, so to speak. You know, back to the Imperial College, um, that was also um, that was a real pivotal um, time for us where we really, again, um, had to, to think about, um, in terms of a response, what are those really important metrics and things that we need to plan around? And that was really um, a key time that... Um, we really honed in on uh, projections of hospital capacity, and uh, you know that's something that we work on on a you know on a on a regular basis. We we work with hospitals all the time, um, and but you you really test kind of all that planning that happens in normal times in in times of crisis like this, and you know uh, had to really work hard on. You know, with individual hospitals, um, what does it look like to double your capacity? What do you need to do that? Um, You know, environmentally, staff-wise, equipment-wise, supply-wise, and can you do that and for how long? And not only what does that look like if you have to double it, but what if you actually have to triple it? And, I mean, we were working literally in scenarios like that that contemplated things like, um, setting up, you know, alternative care sites or kind of field hospital type things. And we actually physically, the national guard set up two of those facilities. I mean, that's, you know, on certain days I was just like, this is surreal to think, you know, we might have, you know, people (laughs) in this huge congregate like building, you know, on cots, um, because there, you know, there's sicker people that actually need those hospital beds, and so that that was pretty surreal in terms of those early days, um, and also just talking, about, you know, and you know, planning for things like, um, again, with the National Guard, um, you know, they have some medical capabilities, and so it's like, okay, if we have a hospital that, uh, you know, gets gets overrun by COVID, their 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 own staff gets sick, or Uh, For whatever reason, they cannot staff, you know, the beds that they have. You know, what what should we do in those situations? And it was planning for some medical capability units. Um, I affectionately refer to them as kind of jump teams, kind of jumping in, taking care of patients, letting the hospital, you know, staff, the regular staff um, get better so that they can kind of come back to work. And so those are just, I mean... You know, you you, you kind of you know in our world you plan for those kinds of things in a theoretical way, and we've got planning and you know on paper and in binders. But when you really start to to make those plans real, and you're not only um, have them developed, but you're you're refining them every day with new data points and new you know um, you know new decisions potentially. Um, that's when that really got real about. Um, how catastrophic this disease could actually be on the health of people. And so I think that was kind of a real, um, turning point in my own mind. And I think for a lot of our team about, you know, it, it makes it real when, when you see how your, your hospitals could in fact be overrun, um, realistically. I mean, this wasn't just planning and it wasn't theoretical. And that's where those models really, um, I think helped make that, I mean, some of that pretty real in our, in our minds.
0: You know, before um, we started recording, we I mentioned to you that we were doing interviews about COVID um, this time last year, and we spoke with a professor here at USD about vaccines. And you know, at the time, we were just wondering, like, well, could we even develop one, right? And I mean, you mm. mentioned kind of the efficacy rates of some of the you know vaccines that are now available. You know, South Dakota has been a real, I think, leader nationwide in the vaccine rollout. Why? Why do you think we've been successful you mentioned like the partnerships that we have with kind of the three major systems um you know does that explain it is a the kind of central um you know administrative way that the the state kind of um helped out in that program what do you think has made south dakota so successful in that regard
1: yeah um well it is um it is something that i i will tell you is a a pleasure to work on relative to covid um so I will say that, but no, I, I think there's a few things, and um, you know, the first is we've been planning since August, um, not knowing what the future is going to bring, but no, knowing that planning was going to, you know, be a huge benefit, and so really, you know, choosing to take the path of preparation over panic uh, was another conscious de- uh, decision, and at the, the, you know, we, we benefit um, here in South Dakota. I, I literally have we have staff members from our department who. Led our H1N1 vaccination efforts, which is another huge vaccination effort, looked very different. Not, you know, necessarily the crisis that we're in now, but so we have the benefit of some of that institutional knowledge of what worked then, and you know, knowing that planning um, early is going to just be a benefit. And so we've had conversations now since August with our stakeholders about how we saw this playing out, and. Um, And that uh, the benefit of that early planning, I think, helped situate us differently than other states. And, you know, one example would be, you know, we've had a lot of federal funding associated with COVID. Um, In fact, we right now have had more federal funding for COVID than my entire annual budget in a given year. So a lot of federal funding available and early on in one of those federal grant opportunities, you know, we wrote in some financial assistance to help us with vaccination and and most other states weren't doing that. And most other states did not do that. And so I think that the benefit of that early planning was to help us get the resources needed, um, to, to make this easier. Um, so planning early, um, you know, and, and really being transparent about that. And that's another thing I do really feel good about our response. And, um, you know, the governor deserves a lot of credit. I mean, we, we've been transparent since day one, again, with what we know, what we don't know and, you know, what we're doing. And so, um, as it pertains to vaccinations, um, you know, states needed to develop a plan. We, you know, we, we worked on that. We shared it broadly. I mean, we were, you know, by that point, um, having webinars, um, with anybody that wanted to be a part of it, anybody that wanted to know what we were working on. I mean, these were open. We have them all archived on our website and it was, you know, so that people just, just know what's, what's happening. And if they have input to provide, we, we want to get that because it's going to make the process better. And so early planning on the, on the vaccination plan, um, certainly helped. Um, but we really, um, what, one of the things that's worked very, very well is, um, uh, uh, we asked our phase one vaccinating partners, So we did kind of an open process. We asked the three big systems just because of their footprint, you know, will you partner with us? And they were very willing and, you know, wanted to be a part of the solution. Um, and then for areas of the state where they're not necessarily, um, you know, have a lot of footprint, we, you know, did a kind of an open solicitation and said, are there other hospital-based systems? We knew at that point that there was likely to be some Um, storage requirements or handling requirements that would require um, certain kinds of physical, you know, capabilities. And so we opened it up to other hospitals to say, you know, are there other hospitals that want to be considered as a, as a phase one vaccinator in in our terms? And, you know, we had other hospitals raise their hand. And so right now we're working with um, Avera health, Moebridge regional hospital. So small hospital, Northwestern, South Dakota, Mm -hmm. Monument Health, uh, West River, what's called the Northern Plains Network, which is uh, a series of independent hospitals in Watertown, Brookings, Huron, Madison, and then Sanford Health, um, of course, out of Sioux Falls. And so that group um, is our, you know, kind of our, our phase one group. And, you know, we've had incredible communication with them, um, incredible transparency, And I think we've just, you know, again, we're working from the same playbook. And when I see examples where we have calls with a group like this and we're looking at our statewide data to say, okay, this is the group we're trying to vaccinate, you know, people age and older. Um, Based on census data, we know by county our, you know, our vaccination rates. It looks like we really need to focus here or there. Um, and then you see those phase one vaccinators say, well, you know, so that we can stay consistent across the state, you can take some of the vaccine that I would have gotten and reallocate it to this other system so that they can go get, you know, shots and arms over here. Wow. I mean, I, I just think that
0: says to interrupt you for says a second, the world. It's that targeted. Yeah. Oh, yes. Wow. Yeah! Hmm. That, yeah. That, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's like amazing. And so, yeah, you were able yeah. in real time to to shift to just kind of make sure that demographically kind of the entire state was getting covered.
1: Yeah. And that, that, was another thing. I mean, we really set out our goals early on and there was strong consensus around that. And that, and one of them was, you know, nobody gets left behind. I don't, you know, we have very remote areas of our state and very underserved areas of our state, to be honest. And, you know, just because of that, people um, should still have equal access to vaccine. And so, you know, we we laid out kind of some guiding principles that way very early on, and, and there's been strong consensus around that, um, you know, from the get-go. Um, and then, Michael, the other thing I would tell you that is, um, I don't know if it's unique or not, but I would say I think early on we recognized at the state health department level that we had to own this. Own this. I mean, this wasn't a problem for other people or a problem for the systems or, you know, we don't even have local health departments. So, um, you know, we, we we knew we needed to take ownership to make this process successful. And so, I mean, we've got an incredibly dedicated team of folks here that I'm not exaggerating. I mean, since August, um, they're working every day on the data, on what's happening. Um, The vaccine, you know, situation has evolved, you know, tremendously. We find out every, this is how this works. Um, We find out every Tuesday morning in a federal system what we're going to get allocated through the state allocation the following week. We have a call, um, and so our team meets internally just to kind of, you know, have a thought about what that number, how that number matches to the population that we're um, still trying to vaccinate and just, you know, kind of how that matches up. And we have some preliminary ideas of how we want to allocate the doses that we're going to get the following week based on the systems that we're working, the phase one vaccinators that we're working with. We do a call with that group every Tuesday at 4 o'clock, And we talk through what do we know about the next week. We talk through where they're at with getting through the population that they're working on that week. We talk through questions that they have, issues that they have. um, And then we talk about what's going to happen the next week. And that's, um, you know, that's where we then typically kind of get to consensus around who's getting what of the allocation. And then by Thursday at noon, so this is so, you know, Tuesday's done. By Thursday at noon, uh, those those phase one vaccinators have worked through kind of what we call a micro plan to say, you know, I've got four thousand doses, and I'm going to go to these communities, and I'm allocating this much of my four thousand doses to these communities um, the following week. And so it's it's a pretty granular process, and it is. Um, and then we so we get those plans on Thursday. Um, Now we have a a separate call to talk through those details on Thursday afternoon, and um, then on Friday at 11, we have another big group meeting just to make sure everything's working, everybody's on the same page. Um, Now, because we've got those retail pharmacies and um, getting direct federal allocation, we've got them at the table to share how things are going for them, making sure that they know where we're at as a state and that they're working on the same priority groups, uh, we have one federally qualified health care center who's a part of that um, effort now. And so, you know, the effort's kind of grown, but that's kind of the daily cadence of, like, what you have to do to stay on top of this. And um, I'm not complaining by any means. It's just it's it's a lot of details, and our team has worked every single day to to keep their arms around that and I feel like that's really um, been a major part of our success and I'll just mention Angela Jacqueline, and Tim Heath deserve so much credit in all this they are incredibly dedicated um, public health professionals and you it's pretty neat to see um, the dedication of people like that and then people just like that and all of these systems working um, you know for the, the good of the population it's, it's pretty gratifying.
0: You may have already addressed this, but then what what do you, I guess, anticipate as the biggest challenges um, with the vaccine rollout so we can kind of keep this like forward momentum going?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, we do still have people that are, are just choosing not to get vaccinated. Um, now, one thing I'll share with you, which I'm really excited about, um, we know COVID uh, uh, really impacts older people at a at a a larger rate. So we see more morbidity and mortality among people age 65 and older. And when you look at, you know, 80 and older, it's even more um, apparent. So really vaccinating people um, age 65 and older has been a key part of our um, priority um, with this. And as of yesterday, we vaccinated 74% of all people 65 and older which is amazing. I mean, our goal statewide is to get 70, 70% of adults vaccinated, which would be a very high rate, but we're already seeing 74% of that group um, age 55 and older vaccinated. So um, that uh, is, is good news. Um, but even so there's people that aren't vaccinated and um, you know, we are really working through, you know, our priority populations um Vaccines will become available to the public, just any adult, um, we think, here in South Dakota um, next month in April. Um, And that'll be an opportunity, again, for anybody that's willing and wanting to be vaccinated. But we, we really do need to go back and make sure we're not leaving people behind. And those are people that maybe just need more time to make a decision. They might need more education. They might need education differently than what we've been providing so far, and so my biggest thing moving forward is just making sure that we do our due diligence and really reach some of those um you know folks that just aren't aren't, aren't becoming vaccinated uh, so far.
0: You know there are a variety of vaccines um that one can take is one vaccine better than the other?
1: Um well this is uh you, you've probably heard this or your listeners have but uh, the vaccine you should get is the first one that's available to you. Uh, Again, they are um, all incredibly effective and uh, not, you know, there's not uh, like contraindications, you know, of any one of them with particular, you know, individuals. And so, um, you know, we weren't sure if that was going to be the case or not, if we're going to see, you know, one vaccine recommended for older people and another vaccine recommended for people with health conditions. I mean, uh, that was one thing we kind of anticipated could happen, but so far all three vaccine vaccines that have the emergency approval are indicated for all adults. Um, uh, Pfizer actually goes down to age 16. So if you're 16 or 17, you get the Pfizer vaccine. Um, but no, I mean, people, uh, they are all incredibly effective. Um, and again, um, you know, even if you contract COVID after being vaccinated and it, and it seems more, and it seems like a cold, um, you're not going to be in the hospital and you're not going to die if you're, if you're vaccinated. That, that's what the
0: efficacy shows us. You know, and, and so for people who, you know, just aren't there yet with the vaccine, they are, are worried about maybe the approval process or they, they don't, you know, totally understand why, why they themselves need to get one. They might not, you know, have some of the, um, you know, underlying conditions that might make it, you know, super severe. I mean, what, what would you tell that specific group, um, to try to convince them or persuade them that the vaccine is is kind of necessary or, or important?
1: Well, I think there's a, a lot of things to think about in, in that regard. Um, first of all, I, I, I see, personally, um, vaccines in a situation like this as, as a responsibility um, to myself and my family and others I'm going to come into contact with to keep them safe. Um, and um, we know that that's what vaccines and, and these vaccines do. Um, you know, the safety profile of these um, is also incredible. There's not been one death associated with a vaccine, um, and there's a very robust um, monitoring process for that. And, you know, the same safety uh, requirements and processes that we use for our entire vaccine supply, which is the safest in the world, have been used on these vaccines. Um, And so I know the FDA was literally going line by line, you know, doing a line item analysis of the clinical data that was associated with the trials, which included 30,000, 40,000 people. And so, this wasn't a fly-by-night, um, let's just do something and hope it works. And so I'm very confident in the safety, and I think that's really being borne out. As you see, I mean, we've got over a third of our population has had at least one vaccine, and you shouldn't be hearing from people that are having severe reactions because, you know, it's just not happening. So um, from a safety perspective, I think people can feel very um, assured that it's safe and we know it's effective. Now, back to the whole, well, maybe I just, you know, I'm pretty healthy anyway. I I really don't need one. Um, You know, I think there's just too many examples of the unpredictability of COVID that people should really give that pause. Um, We've seen too many people. um, Now, while, it, you know, we know it impacts um, older people at a higher rate, there are still way too many younger people and even healthier older people who have very significant COVID cases. Um, I mean, I personally have talked to people who said I, I thought I was going to die, <laughs> and obviously they didn't. But I mean, I mean, it can be very, very impactful. And so I don't know why people personally would take that risk if you can get a safe, effective, and free vaccine. I just don't, you know, understand that thinking. Um, you know, the um, uh, the idea that uh, you know vaccines are um, you know, there's conspiracy theories out there. Um, I just really encourage people to get their information from valued sources um, and, and true sources. Um, and uh, that would be the CDC. That would be your state health department. Um, there's no interest that anybody has other than providing the the data and the science behind this. And, um, again, people should, this is going to be our path out of this pandemic. Um, and um, if we can keep people from, you know, being hospitalized, dying from COVID and, and really living with COVID because that's probably where we're going to be. Vaccines need to be a part of that. And the more people that get vaccinated, the sooner we just get there.
0: Secretary, um, I've got two questions. Both of them are kind of, I guess, reflective. One might be more professional, one more personal. I'll start with the professional one first. You know, we've kind of talked about this this entire hour. I mean, what what is the ultimate lesson or lessons that you will sort of draw from this pandemic experience when you think about, you know, public health?
1: Well, I, I think it's hard to answer that with just one answer. I would just share maybe a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, I, I think I think public health has been undervalued for a long, long time. Um, and if you think about why that is, it, it makes sense. You know, in public health, we are trying to prevent... Um, bad things from happening to people's health. And so um, it's hard to put a value on things you don't necessarily see. And so, you know, we work, um, you know, outside of a pandemic on things that are just important to people having the best life possible from a health perspective. And that means that they're healthy and that they're able to participate in life and that, uh, you know, they can do the things that that they want to do. And so um, we work on things like, you know, healthy eating, um, healthy weight, you know, not smoking, um, regular immunizations, keeping babies safe, um, infant mortality. So if you think about the things that we're just normally involved with, um, a lot of that is preventing, um, bad things from happening and it's hard to value what doesn't happen. Um, and in a political world, which we are, you know, memories are very short. And so, um, you know, I, what I hope this pandemic does is sheds light on the importance of public health. And, you know, we've seen an incredible amount of investment federally in public health. And I hope that, um, post pandemic, that there continues to be support for this work, um, because it really can make a difference. And I think we've seen that in in the course of this pandemic. So kind of high level that's, that would be a desire there. Um, I think personally, you know, here in South Dakota, I think, um, you know, I think we've seen um, that uh, we can um, really be transparent about what's going on in a situation, and and by and large, people do the right thing. And that's not to say that people do um, the thing that we always want, um, but by and large, they do the right thing um, in their in their situations. And um, you know, that's that's there's a whole political angle to that. Um, Kind of kind of discussion, and it's it's really unfortunate in my opinion that some of the aspects of this response have been politicized because I just think it's unnecessary and distracting. Um, but I do feel personally that um, you know a, a good thing that's come out of this pandemic is we've seen um, you know business owners and schools and um, certainly the healthcare community um, and just the average person in our state. Pay attention to this thing and just really want to do the right thing. And I think that bodes well, and I, I feel like that should be a source of optimism to all of us that, um, you know, when push comes to shove, um, people, um, they, they want to do what's right for themselves and, and, and for, for others.
0: Secretary, the last question we always like to ask our guests, like I said, is a little bit reflective. Um, at this point in your life, what do you know for sure?
1: Oh my goodness. Well, I, I know for sure that you can count on people. Um, and I'll, and I'll just, I'll tell you why I, um, have learned this, um, in the last year and it's really just solidified in, in my mind. Um, you know, we have worked incredible days and, um, you know, with a, a, just a lot of, um, unknowns and, um, you know, just wanting to, to do the best job we can do for people in our state. That's what we do as public servants and, um, care very deeply about those issues. And, um, you know, when I, I've gotten, I I keep a folder of these, um, of just notes of people that have written me that have said, thank you, or, um, just, you know, shared their experience, um, good or bad and just reached out and, um, you know, I, I just think that really speaks to um, the resiliency of people and um, that even in really, really stressful times, because this, I mean, this is obviously stressful for us, but it's been stressful for everybody. Um, for When people do that and they reach out and they offer you know, an extension of warmth and empathy and um, generosity, in the midst of their own personal crisis. I mean, it's just really made me and um, solidified in my mind that you can count on people um, to be there. And so that's been an amazing thing. I had a letter and I'll just maybe end on this note I had a letter from a 91 year old lady who I do not know um, from the Western part of our state, handwritten, beautiful handwriting. I mean, it was just gorgeous. Um, who was writing to me about, you know, the fact that she was kind of holed up in her house and um, really lonely and just couldn't wait for the end of this pandemic and, you know, that she was praying for us so that we could do the work needed to end this pandemic. And it wasn't complaining and it was just a note of reaching out. And she um, shared a, a, a separate note attached to it that was stapled to it and kind of folded up, and it said, For your eyes only. And I unfold this thing, and it says, If there's one good thing about this, I haven't had to wear a bra in the last four months. <laughs> 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 I just, it just made my day. <laughs> and so you see a note like that, and you go, You know, people are good, and we're going to get through this. And you can count on people that you don't even know to be with you. And I think that's, you know, I'm not sure. I always have known that. I don't know. You know. Hopefully, there will be um, days in the in the future when I remember that. But that's been a, a really. Um, I'm really grateful for having had that part of this experience.
0: Um, Secretary, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for representing um, University of South Dakota. We are proud that um, you are one of our alumni. And um, thank you so much for just the work that you've done the past year. I like I said I, earlier. I, I can only imagine the difficulty and the enormity of the challenge and um just thank you i mean just from the bottom of of my heart so
1: um i I do have to do a plug and i I will just say usb has been great um i mean you guys have just you stepped up and that's that's another thing about this is you know people just step up and they're like okay we got a job to do and it's our job to do it and uh you guys uh have been awesome to work with. My team talks about that all the time. And I just really think it speaks to the South Dakota spirit and go Yotes.
0: Yeah, for sure. Go Yotes.